Dude, after hearing the intro of the last Q&A, I'd say that if any letter should be dropped, dude, you guys should call yourselves Bible Study Oddcasts. Because let me tell you, man, you are just odd. Okay, I think I can live with that. Hello, everybody, and welcome once again to BibleStudyPodcast.org. Today is Thursday, March the 5th of 2009, and as always, I'm your host, Toby Logsdon, and welcome to our next Q&A lesson here on BibleStudyPodcast.org. And I'm sure that some of you, if not most of you, probably realize that this is the first lesson we've done this week, and today is Thursday, so what's up with that? Uh, yeah, what's up with that is, um, well, you know, after the ice storm that we had uh, about um, five weeks ago, about a month and a half ago, five weeks ago, uh, you know, the, the trees here were still a mess, and so our landlord's son-in-law was over here trimming trees and uh, accidentally cut a branch off that knocked our internet out. And it wasn't until yesterday uh, afternoon that they were able to get that back up and running again. So as much as I wanted to put a lesson out there for you guys earlier this week, uh, we didn't have internet. And then yesterday, uh, my wife and I, we go to Atlanta Bread Company because I was going to uh, get online, get some of the questions that you guys have emailed me, and work on the Q&A lesson that I was going to be doing this week, which we're doing today, obviously. But I was going to get those yesterday morning. And so we go to Atlanta Bread Company, I get online, and I tell you, within five seconds of getting online, the power shuts off completely in there. This lady in an SUV ran into this telephone pole uh, maybe 20 yards away from where we were and knocked it completely off. I mean, knocked it in half, and then it just, there was a base sitting there, and then the telephone pole was uh, right next to it. And so, you know, power was out for hours. So evidently, I was just not supposed to make, uh, you know, I was not supposed to get online yesterday and do the lesson. So uh, anyway, so we'll do it today. So anyway, God bless you guys, and it's such a blessing to have you guys here. One quick announcement before we get started, and that is that next week I am going to be out of town uh, at my last class uh, for my seminary education. And, man, I I am looking forward to getting this over and done with. It's kind of just a review of everything that we've learned uh, through the whole program. So... Yeah, uh, recalling five years and 30,000 pages worth of information, no problem. Uh, <laughs> but uh, as a result, there will not be um, there will only be one lesson next week, and actually until April 1st, that's when all my seminary coursework is due, uh, between now and April 1st, there will only be Romans podcasts every week. Um, and after we get done with that, after I'm done with... Um, after I'm done with seminary and everything, everything's turned in, I will resume the normal schedule. And we'll pick up with, uh, you know, Romans, wherever we are in Romans at that point, and we'll be picking up our lesson on the omniscience of God talking about middle knowledge. So anyway, be looking for that next month, first Wednesday next month. So anyway, I also want to welcome Christina. She'll be with us here as always, and she'll be reading my questions for me. So anyway, Christina, what do we have for our first question? Okay, our first question today comes from Stephen. Stephen writes, There's something that has been stuck with me since your Darwin lesson. What is your basis for saying God's day is 24 hours in reference to Genesis and creation? Well, that's an excellent question, Stephen, and thank you for sending that in. And the reason that I like this question so much 
is because I didn't have a chance to justify my presuppositions in the the uh, five reasons I reject evolution. Happy birthday, Darwin lesson. You know, it was already kind of a long lesson, and I knew that going in. Uh, I knew that I wouldn't have enough time to elaborate on some of the things that I would have liked to. And one of the things that I think is worthy, or would have been worthy of elaborating on, is why I believe that each one of the days of creation was a literal 24-hour day. Um, But I've got some time now, so let's go ahead and use this time to talk about this. Why do I believe uh, that each one of the days of creation was a literal 24-hour day? Well, let's start this discussion by just looking at some of the arguments for each side in this issue. For the young earth position, which says that the earth is about 6,000 years old, uh, one of the most common supporting arguments is they'll say that whenever you find the word day used in conjunction with an ordinal number, it signifies that it's a literal 24-hour day. And this is one of the supporting arguments that you'll hear all the time from some of these young earth ministries out there. However, I would say that there is a possible exception to this rule, or what they claim is a rule. And that is Hosea chapter 6, verse 2, which says, He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before him. Now, are these ordinal numbers here in Hosea chapter 6, verse 2? Yeah, but are these literal 24-hour days? I'm not so sure. Uh, It sure seems like those are uh, not literal, but that those would be figurative speech, that that would be figurative speech. So I'm not so sure that those are literal 24-hour days. So this is a possible exception to this so-called rule. Now, one of the most common arguments for the old earth position, which basically... Uh, consists of everybody who says that the earth is older than 6,000 years old. Uh, One of the most common arguments you'll hear for this position is that the word day is often used in a generic sense where it clearly doesn't refer to a literal 24-hour period. The Bible speaks of a day of judgment, for example, and honestly, you know, I doubt that most people would interpret this to mean that uh, that the judgment will consist of a literal 24-hour day. It's kind of being used in a generic, general sense here. Um, another argument that's been presented by old earth advocates is that the Bible teaches that a thousand years is like a day for God. Uh, however, God is outside of time, and what we what we have when we see this, when it says that a thousand years is like a day for God, this is just a figure of speech. It's a figure of speech that's trying to communicate the fact that God is outside of time. One thousand years is not literally a day for God, because there are no days for God, because there are no befores and afters or moments with God. There's only an eternal present. So really, this argument is absolutely baseless. And a final uh, common old earth argument that you might hear against the idea that the earth was created in six literal 24-hour days is that the earth shows evidence of being much older than 6,000 years. Uh, However, as I noted in the, the Darwin lesson, this argument doesn't cover all its bases. The earth could have been created in six literal 24-hour days, and there could have been just billions of years between each literal 24-hour day. And further, the Bible indicates that Adam was created as a fully grown man. Well, why could not God have also created the world with an aged appearance as well? I mean, it's at least a possibility, right? So this argument is also just pretty weak. But what it all comes down to is this. I believe that the Bible should be read 
plainly, uh, just as we would read any other book. There are no hidden meanings or hidden mystical truths in the Bible. The Bible means what it says. And so with that being said, I think that if we approach the text of Genesis and leave out our prejudgments and leave out our biases, uh, leave those things out of our interpretation, well, the text is communicating that there are literal 24-hour periods to each day. And if it were figurative language, why would there be a reference to morning and evening in each day? We recognize that there is figurative speech in the Bible. It's a valid form of communication, but the text has to indicate that it's figurative. I simply don't see any real reason to believe that morning and evening represent anything other than, well, morning and evening. And further, support for each day of creation being a literal 24-hour day is found in Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11, where we read, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. And obviously here he's referring to literal 24-hour days, right? We better hope so. And then he continues, But the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work. You or your son, or your daughter, your male, or your female servant, or your cattle, or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And so God is instructing here, he's instructing us to take a literal day of rest after working for six literal days. And he uses the example that he set in creating the heavens and the earth as the basis for this command. So if each day of creation was a million years, for example, just to put a number out there, if each day of creation was a million years, then what God would really be saying is work for six million years and then take a million years off just like I did. And we hope that's not what he's saying, right? So, uh, you know, all things considered, I really don't see any legitimate justification for interpreting the days of creation as being anything other than 24-hour literal days That's an excellent question, though, Stephen. I mean, if you need uh, clarification or further elaboration, just let me know. I'll help you out however I can. Uh, Before we move on, however, I do want to point out that there are some people out there who take this issue, that is the the, uh, old earth, young earth debate, and they make it kind of a, a litmus test for Christian faith. Now, contrary to the opinion of a lot of young earth advocates, this is not an essential doctrine of the Christian faith. If the days of creation aren't literally 24 hours in length, it doesn't undermine the credibility of the Bible. Rather, what it does is it reveals that we're capable of making errors in our interpretation of the Bible. If somebody loses their their faith or loses their confidence in the Bible over this issue, it's because they've turned a molehill into a mountain. It's just it's it's an issue that's worth having an opinion on but it's not worth causing division in the body of Christ. That's my opinion of it. But uh, if you need uh, clarification, you know where to find me. So anyway, Christina, what do we have for our next question? Okay, our next question comes from W. W writes, how should Christians select a church? I have been a member or attended a church most of my life. Prayer, Bible study, reading between me and God, podcast, TV, etc. have been a part of my daily life. My knowledge and relationship with God has grown tremendously. I simply do not want to attend a church for various reasons, and I have prayed over the problem. We moved from Minnesota to Seattle three years ago, and I was relieved to be away from all the busy work that overtook my life. Apparently, I overextended myself. I know that I should have Christian fellowship. What is the block? What can I do to overcome? 
Well, W, thank you for your question. Um, if only more Christians would ask this question, we'd probably have better and healthier churches than there have ever been at any point in history. Uh, how should Christians select a church? That's a great question. And I think that most Christians start by asking the wrong questions when they try to select a church. Most uh, Christians start by trying to find a church by asking, what does this or that church have to offer me? What is in it for me? And this question has it all completely wrong. Because when we were born again, we were given a spiritual gift. Each one of us was given a spiritual gifting, the purpose of which is ultimately to edify and build up the body of Christ. So with that in mind, a better question would be, what can I offer this church? Or does this church offer me an opportunity to uh, to use my gifting? You know, in a lot of churches today, there are very few opportunities to use whatever your gifting is. But worse than that, most churches are totally lacking in any type of coherent discipleship program or process in which you're able to identify and develop your gift. Now, as a Christian, it's it's really important for you to be part of a community of believers, uh, of fellow believers. Life you know, especially for the believer, life is is too challenging and just too complicated to try and meet the challenges of life head on all by yourself. And that's why Paul went to such great lengths to develop a whole list of each other or one another commands. In other words, when Paul speaks of and, uh, and addresses believers, he says things like, bear with one another, or be kind to one another, or through love, serve one another. Now notice, when you hear all of these, these are all quotes directly from the Bible, notice that these are all imperative commands. And you can't do any of them unless you're active in a community of believers. And I don't say this to, to judge anybody or, or anything, but just to encourage you guys, you know, uh, podcasts and, and TV are, are great to supplement your walk with Christ and, and your uh, your regular study, but make sure that you're involved in, uh, in a community of believers as well. And of course, before I start going to a church, I also want to take a look at their doctrine. What do they believe? And that's just a given, you know, for me, being, you know, into apologetics and everything. You know, the church should be teaching the Word of God rather than giving inspirational, uh, opinion-saturated speeches on Sunday mornings. Uh, what I hate is when we go to a church, and, you know, we visit a lot of churches around here, and when we find a pastor who saturates his sermons with, uh, with statements that begin with, I think... I think, oh man, I want to hear what God has to say to me, not what this guy thinks. Uh, you know, I'm not opposed to topical sermons at all, as long as they're given expositionally. So uh, another comment I may I might make is that in a lot of churches, it's really easy to become overextended, and it sounds like that's what happened to you in this other church. And it uh, it's very easy for this to happen, especially if the church doesn't have a coherent process of discipleship. And what ends up happening is um, that you have nine events scheduled throughout the week, and the leaders or the coordinators for each event are all begging everybody to come. And so you end up just being busy. And uh, the end result is that you know these various ministries going on within the church are at odds with one another, competing for attendees. So look for a church that has a well-defined process of discipleship, because this type of thing is really just a symptom 
of a church that has no direction and no flow to their uh, discipleship process. So to sum this all up, what do I think you should look for in a church aside from uh, solid doctrine, which again should be a given? Well, first of all, it should be a place where you can serve and thus develop your gifts. Secondly, ask about their discipleship process. If they don't have one, that's a major red flag in my book. Uh, Third, the church should have some system in place through which you can become integrated into their community, whether that be through small groups or group Bible studies or, you know, volunteering to do something, you know, just something where you are being active with other believers uh, outside of the walls of the church. Fourth, um, what's the church doing to reach the community? Uh, A lot of churches are focused inward, but the church should be out there storming hell's gates by being focused outward. So anyway, W, thank you for your question. I hope this helps. And if, uh, you know, if you find a church that you like and you want to review a church's website or doctrinal statement for you, uh, you know, just forward me a link to the church and I'll do what I can to help you out. But um, yeah, definitely look into the church's discipleship process. That's key. So anyway, God bless you, W. Thank you for that question. Christina, what do we have for our next question? Okay, our next question comes from Frederick. Frederick writes... I'm in this world religion class, and the professor is a theologian, which is great and everything, but he was teaching the class about the Q scrolls, and basically mocked the authenticity of the whole New Testament. And I'm just hoping you know anything about the Q scrolls, because it's just been throwing my Christian foundation into a bit of a rut. Well, thanks for the question, Frederick. Um, That's a good question, and we've never said much, if anything. I don't think we've ever done anything about the Q scrolls or or Q documents. So so before I answer this, let's talk about what this Q scroll or, or this Q document is, or what it refers to. The Q document is this supposed list of the sayings of Jesus, which was uh, allegedly developed between 30 and 65 AD, and which explains the similarities in the quotes of Jesus, which we find in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, This document is supposedly what each of those authors referred to when they were quoting Jesus. So how do we respond to this? Well, first of all, uh, Frederick, let me just encourage you personally. Don't ever let some academic uh, know-all throw your faith into a rut. There are literally thousands of false theories out there, and this is just one of them. So stand strong in your faith, because the enemy will pull out all the stops in an attempt to deceive you. And don't ever allow what any teacher or pastor says to put your faith into a rut. So anyway, uh, in response, you know, I think it's worth noting that the Q document is purely hypothetical. There is zero evidence for it. Zero archaeological, physical evidence for it. Nobody's ever found a shred of evidence for its existence. It's just hypothetical. We've got 6,000 ancient biblical manuscripts, but not one manuscript of this supposed Q document. And no church father ever mentioned it either. Uh, You know, they never mentioned this compilation of the sayings of Jesus. And it seems to me that they'd want to preserve that more than anything else. And so they'd refer to it or say something about it, don't you think? You know, Jesus promised his disciples that the Holy Spirit would remind them of the things that Jesus had said and things that he had taught them. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, The book of Matthew was written first. And how do we know that it was written first? Well, because it's addressed to Jews. Who were the first Christians? 
Jews. And, uh, you know, there's, there's other evidence for Matthew being written first, but we really don't have time to consider all of the evidence. All I would say is, if this is something that you really want to learn more about, uh, pursue it. Read this book called Why Four Gospels, written by Alan Black. You won't regret it. That is uh, a fantastic book and explains, goes into very good detail about why we believe that Matthew was indeed written first. And uh, Mark was written next. Mark was a disciple of Peter, and it's very likely that he was also an eyewitness of Jesus' ministry as well. Uh, his narrative is addressed to Gentiles. Uh, Matthew, Matthew's uh, narrative was addressed to the Jews. Mark addressed his to Gentiles. He knew that Matthew had written to the Jews, and so Mark wanted to write to the Gentiles as well. So Mark combined the words of Jesus, which he had either heard personally, or had heard from Peter, or had uh, had read out of Matthew's book as well. I'm sure he had read Matthew's book, and so he thus developed a book that contained some similar quotes, and some which were unique. And Luke makes it completely known up front where he got his quotes from. He starts off his book by writing in the first few verses, he says, quote, "...inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. Now Luke is telling us right here that he has read the reports, very likely Matthew's book and probably uh, Mark's book as well, and he interviewed eyewitnesses personally. And what we find is that each one of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, contain similar quotes, but they contain enough differences over minor details that a former Harvard Law School professor named Simon Greenleaf, who uh, wrote a book called The Testimony of the Evangelists, and who was an expert in uh, eyewitness testimony, he concluded that each of these testimonies was true, because if they were exactly alike, to, to an extent, if they, were, if they were too similar, we would suspect them of collusion. So uh, check his book out, too. It's called The Testimony of the Evangelist, Simon Greenleaf. Etta Linneman, uh, who was a former advocate of this Q document hypothesis and who ended up rejecting the theory after considering the evidence, wrote a book called Is There a Q? And in this book, he noted that, quote, This is the stuff of fairy tales, end quote. He's talking about the Q hypothesis. He says it's the stuff of fairy tales. Gregory Boyd noted that, quote, we could account for such similarities in other ways that don't require relying on a hypothetical document. And he goes on to say, from what we know about Jewish oral tradition and memorization, we could convincingly argue that the commonalities between Luke and Matthew simply indicate the reliability of the oral traditions that lie behind both. End quote. So in summary, uh, there was no Q document. There is no Q document. And the fact that your professor believes that there was requires more faith than it takes to believe that Jesus said what the Bible records him as saying and did what the Bible records him as doing. You know, ask your professor for hard evidence of such a document and Ask him why there's no physical or archaeological evidence for such a thing. And ask him this. Ask him, why didn't the early church fathers ever say a single thing about this supposed 
Q document. And and this is this is a good one. Ask him this. Ask him if there's a Q document that Jesus' sayings are derived from, then why is it that in the parable of the talents, which we find in Matthew chapter twenty five, verses fourteen through thirty, which is the longest so called Q passage, why is it that only about sixty out of the total two hundred and ninety one words are completely identical, with the same parable being told in Luke chapter 19, verses 11 to 27. That's right, there are 60 words that are similar out of a total of 291. You know, if there was a Q document, if this Q document was real, they should be exactly the same. They should say exactly the same thing. Your professor, what he's done, this is what your professor's done. Your professor has traded the reliable gospel portrait of Jesus for a hypothetical, arbitrary, reconstruction of history based on a purely hypothetical reconstruction of a hypothetical arbitrary document which never existed. And he's trying to get you to do the same thing. So shame on your professor. Really, shame on your professor. And you know what? If he wants to push this issue, you know, have your school sponsor a debate. And you know what? They can fly me out there and I'll debate him. Seriously. Thanks for the question, Frederick. I hope this helps. Anyway, uh, Christina, what do we have for our next question? Okay, our last question today comes from Richard. Richard writes, My church did a series called Eternity. Basically, it was a study on end times prophecy and what the Bible says will happen after the rapture. They brought up how Israel becoming a nation in 1948 was prophecy being fulfilled and all the signs mentioned in Matthew 25, earthquakes, wars, and rumors of wars, etc., The church leaders said that they believed we were living in the end times and that we should be watchful and ready. I got to admit, if this is true, I'm ready for the rapture. This world has nothing I want, and I am ready to spend an eternity with our King Jesus. But is this sound teaching? I know that from what I understand, all prophecy is really centered around Israel, not America. However, I really don't understand prophecy very well, so I don't know what to believe. I know that Paul said there would be many false prophets and it would be perilous times. It seems like this is the way things are now. But what if these people teaching this are the false prophets Paul mentions? I have to wonder, though, with all the things going on in the world, like the American economy and chaos in the Middle East, could things be falling into place? Is it possible we are seeing some signs of the last days? I trust your teaching and hope you can help me better understand all of this. I am sure that many people are wondering the same things as me. Well, God bless you, Richard, and thank you for that question. Um, yeah, I'm wondering the same thing as you. <laughs> I mean, obviously, with the economy the way it is right now, and the world governments seeking these solutions to uh, to the snowball effect that we've seen as a result of the economic instability across world markets, you know, this is a totally relevant question. And I can't say that I'm uh, familiar at all with everything taught in this series called Eternity, obviously, but I can say that it sounds pretty solid. Um, are these the last times? Uh, well, biblically, yeah, we're in the last times, but um, you have to pay very careful attention to that phrase. The last times started with Jesus ascending up into heaven at the beginning of Acts. Peter wrote uh, in his um, in his letter, he said, For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. Um, so the last times... Uh, have been going on for roughly the last 2,000 years. And you also asked if we're getting close to the rapture. Uh, Well, you know, obviously uh, we're closer than we were yesterday, uh, but I I really can't answer that. I think that things have to get a lot worse between now and when the rapture actually occurs. 
And that's a scary thought, that things have to get worse. But I think that things will have to get a, a bit worse. Christians aren't being persecuted uh, severely enough or on a worldwide basis for the rapture to happen yet. Uh, one of the things that has to happen is the development of a worldwide economy and a worldwide currency. And I never would have thought that these things would be possible within within our lifetime. Uh, but in less than a year, we've seen our elected officials take some pretty drastic measures to try and fix the damage uh, that we that we see in the world economies. And I think that a world economy is already somewhat of a reality. And I don't think it's too far-fetched to say that we could see a one-world government and a one-world currency happen very quickly, given the current economic conditions. Uh, but I, I can't say definitively. Nobody can say definitively. You'd also ask if uh, if these people are false teachers. And I don't think that these are the types of false teachers that Paul was talking about, even if they're wrong. Uh, these aren't the types of false teachers that Paul was talking about. Paul was referring to uh, the apostate church that falls away from the, the true faith. You know, there have always been false teachers. In the first century, and, and especially in the second century, there was a serious problem with Gnostic mysticism infiltrating Christianity, for example. And so I think what Paul had in mind when he uh, when he talked about false teachers uh, were people who would come into Christian circles claiming to be Christians, but then teaching something other than Christianity. I mean, how many churches these days deny the deity of Christ, or deny the inerrancy of Scripture, or they ordain people for ministry who are involved in a sinful lifestyle? These churches don't teach the gospel, and they don't show any evidence of being spiritually regenerate whatsoever. And, you know, I believe that, uh, that these are some of the false teachers that Paul could have been talking about. He may also have been talking about, uh, you know, those same people that you can find on television, you know, who uh, who claim to be Christian with their lips, but their incentive for being a Christian is experiencing the current uh, financial, temporal rewards that they can reap through manipulating people to support their ministries. And meanwhile, you know, they're flying private jets to these so-called revivals, and they're buying houses worth millions of dollars. Uh, you know, the kind that I'm talking about. And so I think that to uh, to an extent, it's possible that these are the types of false teachers that Paul was talking about. So are things falling into place for the end times, for the end times? Well, you know, I, I think they very well could be, although I wouldn't go so far as to, uh, you know, to, to set a date or anything for when the rapture might take place. Uh, people have sold millions of books trying to do that, and they were wrong. One prominent end times prophecy author uh, predicted that the rapture would come in uh, in the, the late 80s. And my teacher, Dr. Geisler, he told us a story about uh, a meeting that he had with this guy. He said that he saw the author at a convention in 1989 and asked him out to lunch. And so at lunch, Dr. Geisler said, well, Jesus did say that no man can know the times or the epochs. And, uh, and so this end times prophecy specialist replied, well, I'm not going to base my theology on some off-the-cuff remark that Jesus made. What? You know, I'm not that brave. Uh, I'm hanging on every word that Jesus said. He said that nobody can know the day or the hour or the times or the epochs, but he told us also to be on the lookout for certain things. So I think we're seeing some of those things are at least potentially in the not-so-distant future. And I also think that the wise thing for us to do is to stay watchful for his return, to pray for Jesus to return soon, but also to bring as many non-believers into faith in Jesus as we possibly can before he does return. 
So, you know, come soon, Lord Jesus. We are waiting for you, and we are ready when you are. So anyway, Richard, God bless you, and thank you so much for that question. You know, this is a, a tough question to answer, but hopefully this, uh, this gives you a little bit of clarity um, as far as the teaching that you, uh, that you received at this Eternity series goes. So anyway, thank you, Richard, and God bless you. And that's all the time that we have today. I hope that this has been a blessing to you guys. And uh, if you guys could just be praying for me as I go through this, uh, this last class I have next week, I also have to drive out there. I'll be driving through Arkansas, Tennessee, and North Carolina on Saturday and Sunday, and that is a long drive. So if you guys could just be praying for me to, uh, to stay awake and alert and uh, for the driving conditions to be good, man, I would appreciate it. So anyway, God bless you guys. And of course, as always, if you have any, uh, any more questions, if you need clarification on anything, you can email me at cleanslate.ministries at hotmail.com. So anyway, God bless you guys. And thank you so much for joining us today. I'll see you next time on BibleStudyPodcast.org. Keep growing closer to Jesus. Jesus.